Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, read by Simon Anthony. This is Chapter 20. For the story so far, go to Torty Talks and listen to all the others. Otherwise, read the book. But I'll tell you, Arthur Dent is in an air car with Slarty Bardfast on Magrathea, about to have his mind rendered very important, shall we say. Hold tight! The car shot forward straight into the circle of light, and suddenly Arthur had a fairly clear idea of what infinity looked like. It wasn't infinity. In fact, infinity itself looks flat and uninteresting. Looking up into the night sky is looking into infinity. Distance is incomprehensible and therefore meaningless. The chamber into which the air car emerged was anything but infinite. It was just very, very big. So that it gave the impression of infinity far better than infinity would itself. Arthur's senses bobbed and span. As, travelling in the immense speed he knew the air car attained, they climbed slowly through the opening air, leaving the gateway through which they had passed an invisible pinprick in the shimmering wall behind them. The wall. The wall defied the imagination, seduced it and defeated it. The wall was so paralysingly vast and sheer that its top, bottom and sides passed away beyond the reach of sight. The mere shock of vertigo could kill a man. The wall appeared perfectly flat. It would take the finest laser measuring equipment to detect that as it climbed apparently to infinity, as it dropped dizzily away, as it panned out to either side, it also curved. It met itself again thirteen light seconds away. In other words, the wall formed the inside of a hollow sphere, a curve, a sphere over three million miles across, and flooded with unimaginable light. Welcome, said Slarty Bartfast, as the tiny sphere that was the air car, travelling now at three times the speed of sound, crept imperceptibly forward into the mind-boggling space. Welcome, he said. To our factory floor. Arthur stared about him in a kind of wondering horror. Ranged away before them, at distances he could neither judge nor even guess at, were a series of curious suspensions. Delicate traceries of metal and light hung about shadowy spherical shapes that hung in the space. This, said Slarty Bartfast, is where we make most of our planets, you see. You mean, said Arthur, trying to form the words, you mean you're starting it all up again now? No, no, good heavens, no, exclaimed the old man. No, the galaxy isn't nearly rich enough to support us yet. No, we've been awakened to perform just one extraordinary commission for very special clients uh, from another dimension. It may interest you there in the distance in front of us. Arthur followed the old man's finger till he was able to pick up the floating structure he was pointing at. It was indeed the only one of the many structures that betrayed any sign of activity about it, though this was more a subliminal impression than anything one could put one's finger on. At the moment, however, a flash of light arced through the structure and revealed in stark relief the patterns that were formed of the dark sphere within. 
patterns that Arthur knew. Rough, blobby shapes that were as familiar to him as the shapes of words, part of the furniture of his mind. For a few seconds he sat in stunned silence as the images rushed around his mind and tried to find somewhere to settle down and make sense. Part of his brain told him that he knew perfectly well what he was looking at and what the shapes represented, whilst another quite sensibly refused to countenance the idea and abdicated responsibility for any further thinking in that direction. The flash came again. This time there could be no doubt. The Earth, whispered Arthur. Well, the Earth Mark too, in fact, said Slarty Bartfast cheerily. We're making a copy from the original blueprints. There was a pause. Are you trying to tell me, said Arthur slowly and with control, that you originally made the Earth? Oh, yes, said Slarty Bartfast. Did you ever go to a place, I, I think it was called Norway? No, said Arthur. No, I didn't. Bitty, said Slarty Bartfast. That was one of mine. Won an award, you know. Lovely, crinkly edges. I was most upset to hear about its destruction. You were upset? Yes. Five minutes later and it wouldn't have mattered so much. It was quite a shocking cock-up. Huh? said Arthur. The mice were furious. The mice were furious? Oh, yes, said the old man mildly. Yes, uh, well, yes, uh, so I expect were the ducks and cats and duck-built platypuses. <laughs> but they hadn't paid for it, you see, had they? Look, said Arthur, would it save you a lot of time if I just gave up and went mad now? For a while the air car flew on in an awkward silence. The old man tried patiently to explain. Earthman, the planet you lived on was commissioned, paid for, and run by mice. It was destroyed five minutes before the completion of the purpose for which it was built, and we've got to build another one. Only one word registered with Arthur. Mice, he said. Indeed, Earthman. Look, sorry, are we talking about those little furry white things with the cheese fixation and women standing on tables screaming in early 60s sitcoms? Slarty Bardfast coughed politely. <laughs> Earthman, he said. It is sometimes hard to follow your mode of speech. Remember, I have been asleep inside this planet of Magrathea for five million years now, and know little of these early sixties sitcoms of which you speak. These creatures you call mice, you see, are not quite as they appear. They are merely the protrusion into our dimension of vast, hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings. The whole business with the cheese and the squeaking is just a front. The old man paused, and with a sympathetic frown continued, They've been experimenting on you, I'm afraid. Arthur thought about this for a second, then his face cleared. Ah, no, he said. I, I see the source of the misunderstanding now. Now, look, you see, what happened was uh, that we used to do experiments on them. Uh, they were often used in behavioural research, uh, Pavlov and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so what happened was uh, that uh, the mice would uh, set up all sorts of tests, uh, learning to ring bells, run round mazes and things, so that the whole nature of the learning process could be examined. From our observations of the behaviour, we were able to learn all sorts of things about our own... Arthur's voice trailed off. Such subtlety, said Slarty Bartfast. One has to admire it. What? 
said Arthur. How better to disguise their real natures, and how better to guide your thinking. Suddenly running down a maze the wrong way, eating the wrong bit of cheese, unexpectedly dropping dead of myxomatosis. If it's finally calculated, the cumulative effect is enormous. He paused for effect. You see, Earthman, they really are particularly clever, hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings. Your planet and people have formed the matrix of an organic computer running a ten-million-year research program. Let me tell you the whole story. It'll take a little time. Time, said Arthur weakly, is not currently one of my problems. Chapter 25 there are, of course, many problems connected with life, of which some of the most popular are why are people born? Why do they die? Why do they want to spend so much of the intervening time wearing digital watches? Many, many millions of years ago, a race of hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings, whose physical manifestation in their own pan-dimensional universe is not dissimilar to our own, got so fed up with the constant bickering about the meaning of life, which used to interrupt their favourite pastime of Brockian Ultra Cricket, a curious game which involves suddenly hitting people for no readily apparent reason and then running away, that they decided to sit down and solve their problems once and for all. And to this end, they built themselves a stupendous supercomputer, which was so amazingly intelligent that even before the databanks had been connected up, it had started from, I think, therefore I am, and got as far as the existence of rice pudding and income tax before anybody managed to turn it off. It was the size of a small city. Its main console was installed in a specially designed executive office, mounted on an enormous executive desk of finest ultra-mahogany, topped with rich ultra-red leather. The dark carpeting was discreetly sumptuous, exotic pot plants and tastefully engraved prints of the principal computer programmers and their families were deployed liberally about the room, and stately windows looked out upon tree-lined public square. On the day of the great on-turning, two soberly dressed programmers with briefcases arrived and were shown discreetly into the office. They were aware that this day they would represent their entire race in its greatest moment, but they conducted themselves calmly and quietly as they seated themselves deferentially before the desk, opened their briefcases and took out their leather-bound notebooks. Their names were Lunk, Will, and Fook. For a few moments they sat in respectful silence. Then, after exchanging a quiet glance with Fook, Lunk, Will leaned forward and touched a small black panel. The subtlest of hums indicated that the massive computer was now in total active mode. After a pause, it spoke to them in a voice rich, resonant, and deep. It said, What is this great task? for which I, deep thought, the second greatest computer in the universe of time and space, have been called into existence. Lankwell and Fook glanced at each other in surprise. Uh, your task, our computer, began Fook. No, wait a minute, that isn't right, said Lankwell, worried. We distinctly designed this computer to be the greatest one ever, and we're not making do with second best. Deep thought, 
he addressed the computer. Are you not, as we designed you to be, the greatest, most powerful computer of all time? I described myself as the second greatest, intoned deep thought, and such I am. Another worried look passed between the two programmers. Lunquil cleared his throat. There must be some mistake, he said. Are you not a greater computer than the milliard gargantuan brain which can count all the atoms in a star in a millisecond? The milliard gargantuan brain, said Deep Thought with unconcealed contempt. A mere abacus, mention it not. And are you not, said Fook, leaning anxiously forward, a greater analyst than the Googleplex star thinker of the seventh galaxy of light and ingenuity, which can calculate the trajectory of every single dust particle throughout a five-week dagger-brand beat sand blizzard? A five-week sand blizzard, said Deep Thought haughtily. You ask this of me, who have contemplated the very vectors of the atoms in the Big Bang itself? Molest me not with this pocket calculator stuff. The two programmers sat in uncomfortable silence for a moment. Then Lunkwill leaned forward again. But are you not, he said, a more fiendish disputant than the great hyperbolic omnicognate neutron wrangler of Ciceronus Twelve, the magic and indefatigable? The great hyperlobic omnicognate neutron wrangler, said Deep Thought, thoroughly rolling the R's, could talk all four legs off an Arcturan megadonkey but only I could persuade it to go for a walk afterwards. Then what, asked Fook, is the problem? There is no problem, said Deep Thought, with magnificent ringing tones. I am simply the second greatest computer in the universe of space and time. But the second, insisted Lunkwell, why do you keep saying the second? You're surely not thinking of the multicoloured Perceptron Titan Moolah, are you? Or the Ponderemic or the contemptuous lights flashed across the computer's console. I spare not a single thought on these cybernetic simpletons, he boomed. I speak of none but the computer that is to come after me. Fook was losing patience. He pushed his notebook aside and muttered, I think she's getting needlessly messianic. You know nothing of future time, pronounced Deep Thought, and yet, in my teeming circuitry, I can navigate the infinite delta streams of future probability and see there must one day come a computer whose merest operational parameters I am not worthy to calculate, but which it will be my fate eventually to design. Fuchs sighed heavily and glanced across to Lunkwill. Can we get on and ask that question, he said. Lankwell motioned him to wait. What computer is this of which you speak, he asked. I will speak of it no further in this present time, said Deep Thought. Now, ask what else of me you will, that I may function. Speak! They shrugged at each other. Fook composed himself. Oh, Deep Thought Computer, he said. The task we have designed for you to perform is this. We want you to tell us, he paused, the answer. The answer, said Deep Thought. The answer to what? Life, urged Fook. The universe, said Lunquil. Everything, they said in chorus. Deep Thought paused for a moment's reflection. Tricky, he said finally. But can you do it? Again, a significant pause. Yes, said Deep Thought. 
I can do it. There is an answer, said Fook with breathless excitement. A simple answer, added Lunkwill. Yes, said Deep Thought. Life, the universe and everything, there is an answer. But, he added, I'll have to think about it. A sudden commotion destroyed the moment. The door flew open and two angry men, wearing the coarse-faded blue robes and belts of the Crux One University, burst into the room, thrusting aside the ineffectual flunkies who tried to bar their way. We demand admission, shouted the younger of the two, elbowing a pretty young secretary in the throat. Come on, shouted the older one. You can't keep us out, he pushed a junior programmer back through the door. We demand you can't keep us out, bawled the younger one though he was now firmly inside the room and no further attempts were being made to stop him. Who are you? said Lunkwell, rising angrily from his seat. What do you want? I am magic thighs, announced the older one. And I demand that I am Vroomfondle, shouted the younger one. Magic thighs turned on Vroomfondle. It's all right, he explained angrily. You don't need to demand that. All right, bawled Vroomfondle, banging on the nearby desk. I am Vroomfondle and that is not a demand, that is a solid fact. What we demand is solid facts. No, we don't, exclaimed Magic Thighs in irritation. That is precisely what we don't demand. Scarcely pausing for breath, Voomfrontal shouted, We don't demand solid facts. What we demand is total absence of solid facts. I demand that I may or may not be Voomfrontal. But who the hell are you? exclaimed an outraged Fook. We, said Magic Thighs, are philosophers. That we may not be, said Voomfrontal, waving a warning finger at the programmers. Yes, we are, insisted Magic Thighs. We are quite definitely here as representatives of the Amalgamated Union of Philosophers, Sages, Luminaries and other thinking persons. We want this machine off and we want it off now. What's the problem, said Lunkwill. I'll tell you what the problem is, mate, said Magic Thighs. Demarcation, that's the problem. We demand, yelled Vroomfrontal, that demarcation may or may not be the problem. You just let the machines get on with the adding up, warned Magic Thighs, and we'll take care of the eternal verities, thank you very much. You want to check your legal position, you do, mate. Under law, the quest for ultimate truth is quite clearly the inalienable prerogative of your working fingers. Any bloody machine goes and actually finds it, and we're straight out of a job, aren't we? I mean... <laughs> What's the use of us sitting up half the night arguing that there may or may not be a god of this machine only goes and gives us his bleeding phone number the next morning? That's right, shouted Voomfrontal. We demand rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty. Suddenly a stentorian voice boomed across the room. Might I make an observation at this point? inquired Deep Thought. We'll go on strike, yelled Voomfrontal. That's right, agreed Magic Thighs. You have a national philosopher's strike on your hands. The hum level in the room was suddenly increased as several ancillary base drive units mounted in sedately carved and varnished cabinet speakers around the room cut in to give Deep Thought's voice a little more power. All I wanted to say, bellowed the computer, is that my circuits are now irrevocably committed to calculating the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything. He paused and satisfied himself that he now had everyone's attention before continuing more quietly. But the programme will take me a little while to run. Fook glanced impatiently at his watch. How long, he said. Seven and a half million years, 
said Deep Thought. Lunkwill and Fook blinked at each other. Seven and a half million years, they cried in chorus. Yes, declaimed Deep Thought. I said I'd have to think about it, didn't I? And it occurs to me that running a programme like this is bound to create an enormous amount of popular publicity for the whole area of philosophy in general. Everyone's going to have their own theories about what answer I'm eventually going to come up with, and who better to capitalise on that media market than you yourself? So long as you can keep disagreeing with each other violently enough and slagging each other off in the popular press, you can keep yourself on the gravy train for life. How does that sound? The two philosophers gaped at him. Bloody hell, said Magic Eyes. Now that is what I call thinking. Here, Voomfrondle, why do you never think of things like that? Dunno, said Voomfrondle in an awed whisper. Think our brains must be too highly trained, Magic Eyes. So saying, they turned on their heels and walked out the door and into a lifestyle beyond their wildest dreams. Chapter 26 Yes, very salutary, said Arthur, after Slutty Barnfast had related the salient points of the story to him. But I don't understand what all this has got to do with the earth and mice and things. That is but the first half of the story, Earthman, said the old man. If you would care to discover what happened seven and a half million years later on the great day of the answer, allow me to invite you to my study, where you can experience the event yourself on our sensotape records. That is, unless you would care to take a quick stroll on the surface of New Earth. It's only half completed, I'm afraid. We haven't even finished burying the artificial dinosaur skeletons in the crust yet. Then we have the tertiary and quaternary periods of the Cenozoic area to lay down. No, thank you, said Arthur. It wouldn't be quite the same. No, said Slutty Bardfast. It won't be. And he turned the air car round and headed back towards the mind-numbing wall. Chapter 27 Slutty Bardfast's study was a total mess, like the results of an explosion in a public library. The old man frowned as they stepped in. Terribly unfortunate, he said. A diode blew in one of the life support computers. When we tried to revive our cleaning staff, we discovered they'd been dead for nearly 30,000 years. Who's going to clear away the bodies? And that's what I want to know. Look, why don't you sit yourself down over there and let me plug you in? He gestured Arthur towards a chair, which looked as if it had been made out of the ribcage of a stegosaurus. That was made out of the ribcage of a stegosaurus, explained the old man as he potted about, fishing bits of wire out from under tottering piles of paper and drawing instruments. Here, he said, hold these, and passed a couple of stripped wire ends to Arthur. The instant he took hold of them, a bird flew straight through him. He was suspended in mid-air and totally invisible to himself. Beneath him was a pretty tree-lined city square, and all around it, as far as the eye could see, were white concrete buildings of airy, spacious design, but somewhat the worse for wear. Many were cracked and stained with rain. Today, however, the sun was shining, a fresh breeze danced lightly through the trees, and the odd sensation that all the buildings were quietly humming was probably caused by the fact that the square and all the streets around it were thronged with cheerful, excited people. Somewhere a band was playing, brightly coloured flags were fluttering in the breeze, and the spirit of carnival was in the air. 
Arthur felt extraordinarily lonely, stuck up there in the air above it all without so much as a body to his name. But before he had time to reflect on this, a voice rang out across the square and called for everyone's attention. A man standing on a brightly dressed dais before the building, which clearly dominated the square, was addressing the crowd over a tannoy. Oh, people waiting in the shadow of deep thought, he cried out. Honoured descendants of room frontal rain magic thighs, the greatest and most truly interesting pundits the universe has ever known. The time of waiting is over. Wild cheers broke out amongst the crowds. Flags, streamers and wolf whistles sailed through the air. The narrower streets looked rather like centipedes, rolled over on their backs and frantically waving their legs in the air. Seven and a half million years our race has waited for this great and hopefully enlightening day, cried the cheerleader. The day of the answer. Hurrahs burst from the ecstatic crowd. Never again, cried the man. Never again will we wake up in the morning and think, who am I? What is my purpose in life? Does it really, cosmically speaking, matter if I don't get up and go to work? For today we will finally learn, once and for all, the plain and simple answer to all these nagging little problems in life, the universe, and everything. As the crowd erupted once again, Arthur found himself gliding through the air and down towards one of the large stately windows on the first floor of the building behind the dais from which the speaker was addressing the crowd. He experienced a moment's panic as he sailed straight through the window, which passed when a second or so later he found he had gone right through the solid glass without apparently touching it. No one in the room remarked on his peculiar arrival, which is hardly surprising as he wasn't there. He began to realise that the whole experience was merely a recorded projection which knocked six-track 70mm into a cocked hat. The room was much as Slarty Bardfast had described it, in seven and a half million years, it had been well looked after and cleaned regularly every century or so. The ultra-mahogany desk was worn at the edges. The carpet a little faded now, but the large computer sat in sparkling glory on the desk's leather top, as bright as if it had been constructed yesterday. Two severely dressed men sat respectively before the terminal and waited. The time is nearly upon us, said one, and Arthur was surprised to see a word suddenly materialise in thin air just by the man's neck. The word was Loonquall, and it flashed a couple of times and then disappeared again. Before Arthur was able to assimilate this, the other man spoke, and the word Fuchk appeared by his neck. Seventy-five thousand generations ago, our ancestors set this program in motion, the second man said, and in all that time we will be the first to hear the computer speak. An awesome prospect, Fuji, agreed the first man, and Arthur suddenly realised he was watching a recording with subtitles. We are the ones who will hear, said Fuji, the answer to the great question of life, the universe, said Lunquall, and everything. Shush! said Lunquall with a slight gesture. I think Deep Thought is preparing to speak. There was a moment's expectant pause whilst panels slowly came to life in front of the console. Lights flashed on and off experimentally and settled down to a business-like pattern. A soft low hum came from the communications channel. Good morning, said Deep Thought at last. Oh, good morning, oh Deep Thought, said Lunquall nervously. Do you have, uh, that is, 
An answer for you, interrupted Deep Thought majestically. Yes, I have. The two men shivered with expectancy. Their waiting had not been in vain. There really is one, breathed Fucci. There really is one, confirmed Deep Thought. To everything, to the great question of life, the universe, and everything? Yes. Both of the men had been trained for this moment. Their lives had been a preparation for it. They had been selected at birth as those who had witnessed the answer, but even so they found themselves gasping and squirming like excited children. Are you ready to give it to us? urged Loonqual. I am. Now? Now, said Deep Thought. They both licked their dry lips. No, I don't think, added Deep Thought that you are going to like it. Doesn't matter, said Fuching. We must know it. Now! Now? inquired Deep Thought. Yes, now! All right, said the computer, and settled into silence again. The two men fidgeted. The tension was unbearable. You're really not going to like it, observed Deep Thought. Tell us! All right, said Deep Thought. The answer to the great question. Yes! Of life, the universe, and everything, said Deep Thought. Yes! Is, said Deep Thought, and paused. Yes! Is, yes! Forty-two, said Deep Thought, with infinite majesty and calm. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk.